Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Hey, if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 15. We are going through the book of Acts, and we are at Acts chapter 15. And uh, this is one of those pivotal chapters in uh, not only in the book of Acts, but really in the history of the church. Because the decisions that are going to be made during this, uh, what's known as the Jerusalem Council, uh, it reverberates even down to our day today. We are affected, you and I are affected by the decisions that were made in this chapter 15, and uh, in a good way, thankfully. Um, so, because I like pork, but anyways, that's that's another thing. Anyways, <laughs> so I t- entitled this Dealing with Disputes in the Church. Uh, We're going to be dealing with another dispute next week, but today we're dealing with disputes in the church. Uh, Disputes uh, regarding to, in this case, uh, really doctrinal disputes. And uh, again, they are pivotal, pivotal, um, what was decided here. Um, Last week, or this past week, I should say, I was out in North Carolina and I got to meet a pastor of a church. And I don't know if it shows up too well on the sign but it says Windsor, but if you were to look really close up front, it used to say Windsor United Methodist Church, but they've whited that out. That's literally, they whited it out on the sign. This pastor, I met with him and was talking to him, finding out his story, and and uh, they have just, this within months, just left the uh, United Methodist Church because of the the issues that are going on, the, 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 the disputes that are going on within that denomination. And this pastor shared with me how uh, he was being prevented from sharing the gospel when they were doing it by, the, by their denomination heads and, um, and uh, just how uh, the whole, all the people in his congregation, just they, they wanted to do something different. And so um, the entire church, they, they've left the denomination out in some of these denominations, the, the denomination owns the building. So it's not like, well, we're just leaving. You know, there were some, a lot of issues they had to go through, a lot of hoops. Um, but he said, I had the backing of my entire fellowship behind me. And so uh, he was able to do it. They've actually started a church plant in another town about a half, half mile or a half hour away. And people are flocking to it. And I was, I'm like, man, I, you've just encouraged me with what you said. I said, you sound like the church in Acts because the spirit is moving among the, you know, the Methodist church. They were, I mean, they were rock solid when they started. And now it seems like the Holy Spirit's doing another work again. So uh, pray for our brothers and sisters in the Methodist church. I mean, that's, that's, it's an awesome thing. It was encouraged. I was able to pray with him. He encouraged me. Hopefully I encouraged him. Um, but so they had a dispute. And uh, their dispute ended up in, uh, differently than what the dispute in the book of Acts uh, that we're going to be looking at this morning. But uh, in these disputes... Uh, Excuse me, in this dispute, uh, hopefully there's some points, some things that we can glean out of this, and I'm going to try to pull those out as we go through this. So beginning with um, verse 1 of Acts chapter 15. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Pretty strong, right? unless you're circumcised, unless you go through those things, you can't be saved. 
These are probably the same certain men from Jerusalem that we were introduced to in Acts chapter 11. If you recall, those certain men, they were called the men of the circumcision. They confronted Peter and they said, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. And, uh, and uh, so that was, it's probably the same people. Well, it says here that these certain men came down from Judea. Now, they actually went north, so when I think going down, I think going south, but from Jerusalem, it's Jerusalem's on an elevation, so going down is, any direction you go from Jerusalem, you're going down. So they went north, but they went down, so if that makes sense to you. But these guys went down from Judea. Listen, these guys were zealous. They were zealous. Why did I say that? Because where they went was 300 miles from where they were. It's about a 300-mile trip from Jerusalem up to Antioch in Syria. On a good day and with an early enough start, most people can walk about 20 to 30 miles in an eight-hour day. So depending on the person's pace, it would take 10 to 15 days to walk 300 miles. So, I mean, they were on a mission, right? They, they, this was serious business for them. And it says when they arrived there, they taught the brethren. Now, James, the apostle, in his epistle, he's going to say this in chapter 3, verse 1. He's going to say, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. And so it's a warning to pastors, Bible study teachers, Sunday school teachers, anyone that teaches the word of God. The context in James chapter 3 is teaching one thing and then stumbling in that thing that you're teaching someone else. In other words, being a hypocrite, right? You're, you're saying one thing, but you're doing the same thing that, that you're preaching against, you're railing against. That's the context there. But it's not only the danger of how you live as a teacher, but what you say as a teacher, that is important also. Paul would write to a young pastor named Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.3. He would say, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Man, I don't know about you, but I, when I'm praying you know, before services, I'm like, Lord, I pray that I've rightly divided your word, Lord. I, don't, I do not want to misrepresent you in front of your people. That's serious business. Were these certain men teaching another doctrine? I mean, after all, listen, they were Jews, right? They grew up in that in the in Judaism. All their life they lived according to the law of Moses. It was ingrained in them as Jewish people. And you know, you can have something ingrained in you that you grew up with. Uh, maybe it's culture, or maybe it's religious, you know, a faith uh, or customs. And that's ingrained in you. But you know, the thing is, sometimes what's ingrained in you can still be wrong. It could still be wrong. And so what did these guys say? They said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, or in other words, unless you do the work of circumcision, you cannot be saved. Pretty strong statement there. Was that another doctrine? Well, if you go to the Gospels in John chapter 6, verse 28, some people came up to Jesus and they said, what shall we do that we may do the works of God? And Jesus answered and said unto them, this is the work of God. So they're like, what, what kind of work can we do? He, okay, you want work? Here's the work. He says that you believe in him whom you sent. That's the work 
for you and I need to do for salvation. The only thing you can do to be saved is to put your faith in Christ's finished work on the cross. That, that's, that's what you can do as a believer. The Filipino jailer, if you remember him in Acts chapter 16, excuse me, the Philip, Philippian jailer. <laughs> I grew up in an area that was predominantly a lot of Filipino people. I love the Filipino people. They're beautiful people. Anyways. <laughs> But I like, I like to joke around that. Anyways, in Acts chapter 16, you remember the Philippian jailer. What he said to uh, Paul and Silas, it says in verses 30 and 31, it says, And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Simple, just put your trust in Christ. You know, when you you are on very shaky ground, when you start saying what the Lord isn't saying. You're on very shaky ground. Look at Moses. Moses misrepresented God to the people of the waters of Meribah. It was serious. God took that serious. Look at the prophets in Jeremiah's time. Uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 9. The Lord is saying this to Jeremiah, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. You know, they're false teachers today. Peter wrote this in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, but there were also false prophets among the people. He's talking about in the Old Testament. Even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Even today there's false teachers and they are introducing destructive heresies. What would be a destructive heresy? If someone starts talking to you about salvation, and they acknowledge, they say that they're a Christian or whatever, and they say something to the effect of, in order to be really saved, you need Jesus and something. You know, whatever it is. People have all different things that they say. When someone says that to you, they are in effect denying the Lord. It's not Jesus and anything else. <laughs> it's simply Jesus. It's just simply put your faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Verse 2. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. I like this verse because when the Bible says there was no small dissension and dispute, it is definitely understated. It was a huge dispute. It was a huge issue. You remember, Paul the apostle was at one time... Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee, the Pharisee of Pharisees. This is what he says in his letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, three verse 2. He says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, 
persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted for a loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. This is Paul the Apostle, who was Saul of Tarsus. This is how he feels about trying to become righteous through the law. All that Jewish religious upbringing Paul lived in and advanced in, he says, man, I counted it as loss for the excellence of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. He had gained Christ in his righteousness, which is through faith in Christ. He said, oh, that doesn't matter. My righteousness is in Christ. Paul would later say this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 and 25. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. The, tutor, the, the law was meant to, to draw the Jewish people to faith in Christ. So these men, these certain men, they said, unless you do the work of circumcision, you cannot be saved. That's a different doctrine. That's a different doctrine from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul would later say this in Ephesians, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Well, we go look at verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. So it's about a 300-mile trip like I said, from Antioch uh, to Jerusalem. They would have traveled along the coast. It would have taken approximately 10 to 15 days. They would have gone through the Gentile city of Sidon, Tyre, Akko, which is now Acre in, uh, in Israel today, and Shechem, which is in the north bank, in Samaria. They would have gone through all these different cities. In fact, it says they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria describing the conversion of the Gentiles. Now remember, they were sent on a mission, a mission to go to Jerusalem. They're sent to Jerusalem to get clarification from the apostles there. And they're just passing through this region on their way to their destination. But look what they do on their way, on their mission, on their destination, as they're passing through different places, they're sharing about the salvation of the Gentiles with the believers that they come across, wherever they're at. And it's good news. The Gentiles are able to enter into the kingdom of, by faith just like us Jews. That's the message that they're sharing. And it's bringing joy to the people around them. But what a good example for you and I. You know, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I can get on a mission. I've got a plan for a day, and, and then I just, I, this is what I'm going to do. And, and, and then the Lord kind of likes to, sometimes he knows me. And so he likes to kind of mess with me a little bit, you know. And he kind of like introduces things into my schedule that are like, well, I don't planning on that. And, uh, and things happen. And, uh, and uh, um, yeah, I mean, the Lord likes to do that. But sometimes, you know, 
as we're passing through and we go through circumstances, maybe we weren't planning on it or situations that we weren't aware of, uh, you know, it's great to take time to share the gospel, to just share good news with people. We've got missions, we've got plans. You know, I was at, at, I was uh, in North Carolina, like I said last week, and I was in a phone meeting. Uh, and uh, as I was on this phone meeting, I had been driving around, so I had to park the side of the road. I was actually in this little parking area, and it was right by some water, beautiful area. And I'm sitting there, and I've, I've got my cell phone, and I'm in a Zoom meeting. And I had my window rolled down because it was like, I don't know, like 70 degrees or something. It was nice. So I'm sitting there, and uh, this older gentleman pulls up right beside me and parks his car and he kind of looks at me like who's he talking to you know and 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 uh, he was in his upper 80s and uh anyways he gets out of his car grabs a fishing pole and just walks about i don't know a couple hundred feet from where i'm sitting and he starts fishing and i'm i'm on this meeting for about a half hour i get done with the meeting just as he's walking back to his car and putting his fishing pole back in his car and and i just started talking to him and i wanted to share the gospel with this guy this guy would not stop talking to me. I mean, he told me his wife had just passed away nine months ago. His son, who is an addict, you know, finally got clear, cleaned up, but he smokes two packs a day. And he says, I'm all by myself and stuff. And he told me where he lives. I actually know where he lives. And uh, we talked for a good hour or so. Actually, I should say he talked for a good hour or so. But you know what he told me? He goes, it's so good to talk to someone. I don't have anybody to talk to. And I thought, okay, Lord, you've got me here for that purpose. I'm going to listen. And, you know, I ended up telling him, you know, why I was there. I'm there for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And do you know about Franklin? Have you ever heard of Billy Graham? Yeah, I've heard of him. you ever heard of his son? No. I said, well, his son's coming to Edenton in May. And I said, you, you know where the fairgrounds is, the American Legion? Oh, yeah, I know where the American Legion is. Well, I said, well, it's going to be right there. And I said, you have a, you, you've got a phone. I said, you know, maybe I can send you a link. He goes, all I know about my phone is I flip it up and I talk into it. And I said, well, do you, have the, do you have the internet at home? He goes, well, he goes, yeah, I've got a computer. He said, my son set it up. All I know is I can't pull the cord out of it. And I'm like, okay. So I said, yeah, I'll tell you what. I'll just, and I just wrote down the information. I said, you know what, come out Sunday. Check it out. You'll enjoy it, you know. So anyways, but you know, that's not me. I'll be honest with you. And my wife can testify to that. I get, I get kind of tunnel vision on a, on a project or a purpose or a mission and yet the Lord wants to bring people into our lives to kind of rough us up a little bit because he's got a, it's a, I call them divine appointments. And so these guys are doing that. As they're going, they're just passing through and they're sharing good news and it's encouraging people. Now, Phoenicia was primarily a Gentile region. So the Jews that were there, they were known as, generally speaking, they were known as Hellenized Jews. They were Jews that spoke the Greek language. They grew up in the Greek culture. And so they were a little bit more uh, apt to, you know, in fact, the Bible tells us that the Hellenized Jews gladly received the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they're hearing this news and they're like, this is good news. The Samaritans, they were not considered real Jews to the Jews of Jerusalem. In fact, they were looked down. And they also gladly received the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when both these groups, these Hellenized Jews and these Samaritans, the believers, when they're hearing that the gospel's going out to the Gentiles and that they're also being saved, they're like, man, that's awesome. That's great news. They were encouraged by that. The only ones that were having a cow about it were those certain Jews from Jerusalem who had been raised in that strict Orthodox uh, Jewish environment where they had a hard time letting go of their legalism and their self-righteous pride. They just struggled with it. 
What a contrast, though. Paul and Barnabas brought good news that brought joy to the Gentile believers. And yet these certain men, they brought from Jerusalem, they brought an unbearable burden to the Gentile believers. And you know, the gospel is good news. The gospel does free people who are in prison and bondage. But these guys are wanting to put people back into bondage, the bondage of legalism. My first point I want to bring out of this is wherever we go, whatever situation we're in, do we bring joy or do we bring a burden to people? It's an important thing to think about. Am I I bringing joy or or am I burdening someone? Verse 4, when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Peter's pointing out a few things to these brothers. I mean, they're, they're Christians. They're just, they're just, they grew up as Pharisees, and they're struggling with this whole issue. But Peter points out that God made no distinction between us Jews and those Gentiles, purifying their hearts by faith. You see, our hearts are purified because of our belief. It's not before our belief. You've got to get your heart cleaned up. You've got to get your act together, and then you can be saved. Peter nails the issue here. They were putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. There was no Jewish person who could bear that burden of the law. In fact, Paul would later write in Romans 3.20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. See, what the law does is it reveals our utter inability to keep the law. That's the whole purpose. That's why it's a tutor to bring us to Christ. I can't save myself. I need a Savior. Well, here's Jesus Christ, who paid the price for you, who fulfilled the law for you. Put your trust in him. That's the gospel. It was a burden, trying to keep the law was a burden that the Jewish person could not bear. And Peter says, hey, we can't bear the burden of the law, and now you want to put that burden on the Gentiles. What a contrast to what Jesus said. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's a problem when we put a burden that's heavy. The Lord never puts that burden on people. They were misrepresenting God and putting a burden on them that God wasn't. And so Peter ends this verse and says, Now therefore, why do you test God? See, this is serious business. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes this. 
Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's speaking about the Gentiles. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one man from uh, one new man from two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, therefore putting to death the enmity. My point is, Jesus broke down the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile, and those certain men were building it back up. Jesus tore it down, they're building it back up. Not a good combination. Whenever people make it harder for someone to come to Christ than it really is, God's not happy. God gets angry. Remember when Jesus went into the temple and he drove out the money changers. He said to them, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. They were preventing people from coming to Jesus Christ, for coming to faith and praying to God. And it says, after he drove them out, in verse 14 of Matthew 21, says, then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and healed them. See, up until that time, man, they were staying away. My second point is this. Are we creating barriers that God never intended? Because that's what legalism does. It creates a barrier that God says, my burden's light, my yoke is easy. Verse 11, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Do you notice what Peter just said there? He said, they shall be saved. Oh, this is what he didn't say. He didn't say, they, speaking of the Gentiles, shall be saved in the same manner as us Jews. Because that's what the circumcised people wanted to do. He said, we Jews shall be saved in the same manner as they. You see, the Gentiles didn't have the law. They didn't have the law of Moses. They had no works of the law to present to the Lord. They didn't even know the law, right? They didn't know it. They were simply saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. Well, the Jew, they did have the law of Moses, and they had the works of the law, but even though they tried to keep that, they couldn't present anything to the Lord in order to be saved. They were simply saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus, just like the Gentiles. Verse 12, then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declare how many miracles and wonders God had wrought, uh, had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered saying, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people of his name. And with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may see the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. See, there's this point where there's this argument, there's this dispute going on. But then, at this, at, in this portion of scripture, it says that all the multitude kept silent, and they listened. Now, these were guys were these guys were very zealous. They were very opinionated. They felt that they were right, but they reached a point where they just stopped and listened. 
both sides of the argument uh, both sides of the argument they had presented their cases right Peter Paul and Barnabas and the men of the circumcision they all had made their arguments and then they were silent and listened that's a beautiful thing you know it's okay to have differing viewpoints it's great i mean it's there's no problem having different viewpoints but it's a testimony to the unity of the body of Christ here that they didn't endlessly argue their point. They didn't dig in their heels and like, no, we're not moving, you know. People are willing to listen to allow James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, to make a determination. And this is another point I want to bring out. Do you have to argue your point to the death? Are you willing to listen and maybe even yield? Because we're going to see that take place here. So this talks about James. He stands up and speaks. James was the half-brother of Jesus. Church tradition tells us his nickname was James the Just or James the Righteous. He was respected in Jerusalem by both Christians and non-Christians. Warren Wiersbe has an interesting note that James had strong leanings toward the law because in his epistle he referenced the law Ten, uh, at least ten times he talks about the law in his epistle. And so he was most acceptable to the legalistic party in the Jerusalem church. What, he was the right person to stand up and speak is what Warren Wiersbe is saying. And yet, you know, when you look at his epistle, James talks about works, he talks about faith, but he gives the proper relationship between both faith and works. You see, we don't do works to be saved. Our works springs from our faith. There's that one verse, that one phrase that James says, faith without works is dead. And that is so true. You know, if I truly believe something, I'm going to act on what I believe. I know that you guys have a certain faith this morning. You're sitting in chairs this morning. All of you are sitting. There's nobody standing up right now. All of you believe that the chairs you're sitting on are going to support your weight. Why do I know that you believe that? Because you're sitting in them. If you say, you know, I believe this chair is firm. It's what a good quality construction chair. I know it'll support my weight, but you're unwilling to sit in it. You stay standing the whole time. Your faith in that chair is dead because you're not sitting in it. That's the proper relationship between faith and works. And so because of James' reputation in Jerusalem, everyone present, including those men of the circumcision, listened to what James has to say. You know, there's another church tradition that records that James was, in fact, they even had a nickname for him. They called him Camel Knees. And the reason why is because he had callous, such bad calluses on his knees from praying on his knees constantly that he had that nickname. James was a man of prayer, well respected in Jerusalem. And so he says Simon has declared. He didn't say Peter has declared. He's using Simon's, his Jewish name. Very wise, I think, on James's part. He says that Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. This was radical. This was radical for the Jews because they considered themselves God's people. And here James is saying God is also taking out of the Gentiles a people for his name. You know what James 
just said there actually refutes uh, universalism. You know what universalism is? That everybody gets saved. Eventually everybody ends up in heaven. That's, I mean, that's really boiled down, but that's basically what universalism is. But here, not everyone is being saved. Certain Jews are being saved, believing Jews, and certain Gentiles. Paul, that's what uh, James mentions there. You know, I want to bring up something else here. You know, some people base their beliefs and practices on experience. In our Calvary Chapel Distinctives class the first week, we talked a little bit about that. Some people base their beliefs and practices on experience. And look, at Peter had a miraculous experience, right? That vision, he had a, a, a miraculous vision. He experienced a miraculous uh, salvation of the Gentiles. That was an experience that Peter had. Would that experience that Peter had alone, would that have been enough to have at this Jerusalem council say, okay, because of Peter's vision that he had and that miraculous experience, that's enough to base our belief that the Gentiles can be saved by grace through faith. Well, it says Paul and Barnabas relate how they also had miraculous experience of seeing Gentiles saved by grace through faith. And so my question is, now you've got two different groups of people, and they both have had miraculous experiences of seeing Gentiles coming to faith by grace, or excuse me, coming to, uh, saved by grace through faith. Would those two experiences, would those two be enough to say, hey, this is the doctrine now? James takes their experiences and he weighs them against Scripture, and that is such an important thing to do. It's such an important thing to do, to weigh things against Scripture. So he takes Old Testament prophecy, because remember, I've been quoting from different epistles. Those hadn't been written yet. So they would just have the Old Testament prophecies. And so he takes those Old Testament prophecies, not out of context, but he interprets them, he interprets their experience in light of Scriptures. And what's his judgment? Yes, Scriptures corroborate the experience. He says the words of the prophets agree. The word agree is symphonio. You know, we get the word symphony from that. It comes from the word to be harmonious. Thayer's dictionary says to agree together. So their experience and what the scripture says agrees. I know some people that will base their beliefs on just experience. Well, we've just experienced this. Well, does scripture back that up? That's an important thing. The reference to the prophets is important. James point James is quoting out of Amos, and he's not just saying this prophecy, this one passage of scripture uh, reflects this with this experience. He says the prophets. This passage reflects what the prophets teach in general. There are other verses that James could have quoted. He could have easily have quoted Genesis twenty two verse eighteen. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. He could have quoted Isaiah 2.2. 2. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. He could have quoted Isaiah 49.6. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. He could have quoted Zechariah 2.11. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people. 
He could have quoted Zechariah 8.22. Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. All of these passages speak about the Gentiles coming to faith, the Gentiles being the Lord's people. And this passage that James quotes in Amos, James didn't say, that the experience of Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, not Peter, Paul, and Mary, but Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, he didn't say their experiences are fulfilled in this prophecy. This prophecy that he's quoting out of, out of Amos, my belief is that it's referring to the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. But he just quotes it and says it agrees with all the other prophecies because he used prophecies in plural. And then he says this, known to God from eternity are all his works. You see, the, the whole belief that the Gentiles could come to faith in Christ, that originated with God. Peter didn't think it up. Paul and Barnabas didn't think it up. It wasn't something that they dreamed up. God had planned it from eternity past. God purposed to do it from eternity, and he revealed it through his prophets centuries before. And so my next point is, whatever your argument is, whatever your dispute is, is scripture in harmony with your argument? Are you standing on the side of scripture? Or are you standing on the side of just your opinion or, or, or something else? Verse 19. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God but that we write to them that they abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had through many generations those who preach him in every city, uh, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Do you notice what James did not say? He did not say, hey, let's, let's have a vote on this. Let's, let's put it to a vote. Let's see if we all agree. He says, I judge... James was the leading uh, was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Everyone had opinions and everyone could share their opinions, but ultimately one person led and that was James in this case. And there's four things that James says they should require of the Gentile believers. He didn't mention anything about Sabbaths. He didn't mention anything about pork or shellfish. In fact, there's a lot of things he didn't mention, just these. To abstain from things polluted by idols, to abstain from things strangled, to abstain from blood, and from sexual immorality. Now, four things. Sexual immorality is sin. Plain and simple, it's sin. It transcends time and culture. Listen, the Gentiles that were coming to faith in Christ, they lived in a culture that accepted sexual immorality. It didn't forbid sexual immorality. In fact, the worship of pagan deities often included sexual immorality, including prostitution. Homosexuality was rampant in that culture. Incest was common in that culture. Adultery was common in that culture. You know, I've heard this argument. I know a few years ago we had... Uh, a vote in our in was I think it was the state right vote about same sex marriage right and that's a that's a very hot topic today and there are some that base their argument for same sex marriage for allowing it and for not standing up against it 
on this. They say the basis for the church's traditional stand against homosexuality come from the Old Testament, such as in scriptures like in Leviticus. You have verses like Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. And they say, well, you're basing that on, on these Old Testament scriptures. But there are other scriptures in the Old Testament regarding dietary laws, like, for example, Deuteronomy 14, verses 9 through 10. These you may eat of all that are in the waters. You may eat all that have fins and scales. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. So there's dietary laws. There's laws regarding clothing. I have heard this one quoted before. Deuteronomy 22.11. You shall not wear a garment of different sorts, such as wool and linen mixed together. That was one of the requirements for the Jewish people. And their argument is, hey, all these laws that are in the Bible, you're not against anyone who eats flounder or, you know, catfish or, you know, shellfish or anything like that. You're not against those. You're not against anyone who wears a wool blood and sweater. That's not sin. But, you know, I'll be honest with you. I think, whoops, wrong thing. I think those are sin. <laughs> I'm a, I think, I tell you, man. I think you're in sin if you wear a polyester leisure suit. I just... Aren't you glad that that season's gone? I guess someday they'll come back in, but hopefully I'll be long gone before that happens. But No, but their point is this. Hey, there's all these laws. You're not against those things, and yet you're against this one, this one law about homosexuality. You're against someone for wanting to marry whomever they love. This is my response to that. First of all, Jesus never spoke about seafood. In fact, he, he, well, he ate fish. I don't know if it was fish with scales or not, but Jesus didn't speak about seafood, seafood and wool blend clothing. He never mentioned that. But he did talk about the judgment of Sodom. He did. The church of Acts, at this meeting, they didn't write a letter to the Gentiles concerning seafood or wool blend clothing but they did write that they should abstain from all sexual immorality. The epistles do not expound on eating seafood or wool blend clothing, but they do expound on sexual immorality, all sexual immorality, including homosexuality. You see, it transcends time and culture. All sexual immorality, whether it's heterosexual, homosexual, whatever, it's sin. And the Gentiles, they needed to know that it was sin. And if they were going to turn to Christ out of this culture that embraced that, if they were to turn to Christ, they needed to turn away from sexual immorality. That's, that's what repentance really is. It's, it's turning away from something. And so, yes, hey, they need to turn away from sexual morality. That had to do with morality. But the other three... To abstain from things polluted by idols and from things strangled and from blood, those were not a case of morality, but a case of sensitivity. In fact, he even says every week the Jews in the synagogues, they're reminded of these laws. And I think this is what James' point is. Yes, the Gentiles are saved by faith, not works. But the Jewish believers, they're also in the body of Christ. Meat sacrificed to idols, animals strangled and cooked without properly draining their blood, 
That offends Jewish brothers and sisters. And the party of the circumcision, the party that wanted the the Gentiles to be circumcised, hey, they needed to remember that the Gentiles are free from the law of Moses, but the Gentiles also needed to know that though they're free from the law of Moses, they're not free from the law of love. Such an important, important point. Such an important point. This is my next point. We need to remember, no matter what the dispute may be about, we're not free from the law of love. Whatever you're standing on, you're not free from the law of love. Verse 22. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, and this is the letter, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some of us, or excuse me, since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual morality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. I love that. The people on both sides of the dispute, they had no small dissension. It was a big argument. It was a big, it was a, it was a big issue. It was a big deal. And people on both sides voiced their opinions, but then they were silent and listened. Man, I don't know, sometimes I get into an argument, I don't want to listen. I just want to, I just want to get my point across, and I don't care what your opinion is. This is my opinion. You need to hear it. But isn't that beautiful that they stopped and they were able to listen? Okay, they, they said what they needed to say, but then they were silent and listened. And then the people deferred to James, a man of God chosen to lead the church in Jerusalem, a man who had a good reputation with all the people, a man of prayer who had calluses on his knees, and they deferred to him. So they write this letter to the Gentile believers, and they send it by the hand of Paul, a former Pharisee himself, Barnabas, remember what his nickname was? Son of Encouragement. A guy that we didn't know before, Judas, who's also named Barsabbas. You know what his name means? Son of the Sabbath. Here's a son of the Sabbath coming and saying, man, we're not going to lay this burden on you. And Silas, a Gentile. What a beautiful group of men brought together to believe that, or to, to deliver this letter to the Gentile believers. It says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. And I love that. Because they were yielded to the Holy Spirit, they came together in one Honda. No, in one accord. They came together in one accord because they were yielded to the Holy Spirit. 
You see, the unity of the Spirit and the law of love, what's the result of that? It brings encouragement to the people that hear it. So, you know, we're going to have disputes, and, you know, we're going to have our biblical justifications for our disputes, but these, I think this is just a beautiful way as we see it settled here. And like I said in the very beginning, what they, what they settled on here, man, it affects us today. It has ramifications that we feel because we can just come to faith, simply put our trust in Christ and the finished work on the cross. There's nothing I, in fact, there's nothing I can do to earn salvation. And the, the body of Christ now, it, it's got believing Jews and it's got believing Gentiles, and we're one. We're one in Christ Jesus. Such a beautiful thing. Um, why don't you stand up? Let's go, to the Lord, in prayer. We're going to talk about another dispute next week.